Welcome back to another episode of the Young Guides Podcast. I'm Keaton, and this is... I'm Kyle. But first, we're going to bring a word from our partners. First up, we got Heather's Choice. Normally, we'd be telling you guys about our code that you can use on the website, the Young Guides 15, which if you want to, you can. But right now, we have a 30% off site-wide sale to get rid of our old product as we're introducing new product into the lineup here very soon. So we got to get rid of all of our inventory so we can restock and get you guys new recipes, changes to our old recipes, some new flavors you haven't seen. So if you use the code clear the shelves 30 at checkout, you can get yourself 30% off. There are some flavors we're completely getting rid of. And again, some that we're bringing to you brand new. And since I work at Heather's Choice, I've had a direct part in our research and development process and bringing you guys these new flavors and I won't spill the beans exactly yet on what we're bringing you, but I know you guys are going to love it. I cooked a bunch of it today. I smell like it. I smell good. And I'm ready to tell you guys all about it. Once it's released, Keith and I are going to hop on here and we're going to talk to you about those new recipes. So clear the shelves 30 at heatherschoice.com. Get yourself 30% off at checkout. Keaton, back to you. That is exciting news, Kyle. I think I'm going to have to take advantage of that. Heck yeah. <laughs> All right. Next up, we have Lucky Bug Lures, home of the Bingo Bug, Zombie Max, Fusion Extreme, Lucky Plug, F-Bomb, and Pike Bomb. Uh, recently, I just picked up some for myself. I'm looking forward to fishing it. Um, they look like some great um, bass lures and some predator lures and uh, nothing like fishing largemouths in the summer just it just gets me going and i'm so excited so um get yourself some of lucky bugs uh today and uh yeah heck yeah next up we have northern knits handmade wool hats from anchorage alaska uh she'll make you any combination you want pom-pom no pom-pom she loves making them. You can find Northern Knits on Instagram or on Facebook to place your order today and see uh, what inventory she has available or to get in contact with her and see what she can make and then figure out exactly what you want. So Northern Knits, Instagram, and Facebook. Check it out. Keaton and I both have them. You can find her on Instagram under the name at northern.underscore dot knits next up our friend matt at alaska rod co just released a new lineup of rods for the 2022 season he has some awesome new rods including both spinning uh and fly fishing rods but first the spinning rods they have a lineup of eight freshwater spinning rods with action and power for anglers chasing big aggressive fish with lengths ranging from six foot to nine foot. There are plenty of options for various applications and styles. In a world full of mass-produced rods, Alaska Rod Co. makes sure that their rods and service provides what other brands cannot. Rods built and tested in Alaska. Alaska Rodco fly rods are built for harsh environments while maintaining the utmost level of craftsmanship. Right now, Alaska Rodco has nine foot fly rods ranging from five weights to eight weights. 10 foot single hands, switch, and spay rods will be available late this winter or spring. There's enough rod companies out there trying to build the next lightest and flashy rod. 
Alaska Rodco is here to build you a rod you can pass down generations. Fishing means many things to many different people. Alaska Rodco is honored to build you the ultimate tool that connects you to that meaning. We appreciate you guys for taking the time and listening to our podcast, me and Kyle. Um, we see you listening. We're, we hear you um, giving us good intel on our podcast and how it's going. Um, make sure to go over to Apple Podcasts and leave us a review if you can. Um, and even leave us a little comment. Tell us how we're doing, if we're doing good or, or maybe not. Now Spotify is also offering that. If you go there and if we're doing great, give us five stars. We'd really appreciate that. Uh, we th- want to just thank you for listening to our podcast. If you're tuning in every week. Um, and uh, yeah, we're excited and we're excited to bring you some new stuff in the 2022 season. Heck yeah. We really appreciate you guys tuning in. We're seeing the ratings. We're seeing the reviews. Uh, I just checked while Keaton and I were talking. We have, we are now have listeners in 21 States and we have listeners in other countries. Um, so that's super cool to know that we have people we're, we're, I guess internationally, all right, Keaton, people are listening to us all over the place. So we really appreciate you guys listening. Let's us know that we're, we're doing the right thing. And um, we've had some people reach out on our Instagram and let us know uh, what they think about the podcast, giving us some really good feedback, which we really appreciate. And we're putting that um, toward our future episodes. So appreciate you guys. If it wasn't for you, Keaton and I would be talking into microphones to each other for no reason other than to look at each other for three hours at a time, which honestly isn't that bad. Well, on your end, but <laughs> anyways, uh, <laughs> also I just want to point out uh, we hit 1000 listens and that is huge for us for only be, you know, we've only been going a couple months here. So um, we appreciate you guys. Uh, me and Kyle can't thank you enough. Um, please keep staying tuned if you can make sure to go on our instagram we share our upcoming episodes we'd like to have questions for our um, guests coming on to our podcast and um, if you could share you know when we're posting a podcast that's going live if you don't mind sharing it to your friends we would really really appreciate that um, anything else kyle i think that's it i think we should get him into this episode with jordan perigo here we go. Awesome. Welcome back to another episode of the Young Guys Podcast. I'm Keaton and this is... I'm Kyle. And today we have a very special guest on. We have Jordan Prego. Is that right? Yeah, yep, you got it right. Um, guided four years for trout, grayling, and char and pike. And uh, when the season ended there, he became a moose uh, packer. Um, so we're very excited to have him on. We're going to learn a little bit out about a story and about where he came from and where he's going. Um, so without further ado, how you doing, Jordan? I'm doing great. Just another day in paradise. Another day in paradise. Nice. Heck yeah. And you're in Anchorage, right, Jordan? Yeah, I'm in Anchorage. Full-time gotcha. student. Heck yeah. So Jordan, why don't you tell us a little bit about your background? Um where you grew up and all that yeah of course so oh i grew up in virginia um southern virginia kind of southwestern about an hour south of blacksburg um grew up just playing in the woods my dad um i'd, I'd fish with him every summer because my parents were divorced so i'd spend the summer fishing with him wherever he was stationed because he was in the army 
I fished tackle for bass. We did a lot of bass fishing tournaments, like the, the Wednesday night working man tournament. That was fun as a kid. And then um, bounced around Virginia for a little bit and then graduated college or graduated high school um, from a small town and then did one year of college in Virginia and then decided to move up to Alaska in 2017. And I've been up here ever since. Nice. So what was, what was your fishing and um, can you, can you elaborate more on your fishing as a kid? Kind of like how you, did you start out fly fishing? Did you start out gear fishing? Kind of just all about that background. Yeah. So it was um 100% gear fishing. I didn't touch a fly rod until about two months until I moved to Alaska. And so um, it was all gear fishing just for like bait casters, spinning reels, um, all for bass. Let's see. We did do, um, it was primarily on lakes too, whether we were just like hiking in or my dad had a bass tracker. So we would just use that in the summer times. Um, the new river, which is one of the oldest rivers in the world, fun fact, <laughs> um, we would float that um, from about a little bit south of West Virginia. We'd float it for about 12 miles and we'd catch smallmouth. And that was super fun. Um, I'm, I'm going to do that float again with a fly rod one day. Um, but that's kind of really what really sparked it was we did that trip once when I was in like, elementary or middle school. Mm-hmm. And then from there, just kind of, I did it again with some buddies. I did it again right before I left Virginia. Um, and then when I came up to Alaska, it was just like my mind just expanded on the opportunities. Yeah. Nice. Did you uh, grow up in a hunting family at all or? Um, no, I really just grew up with my mom and I um, had a couple father figures in my life, but I didn't really start hunting until the later years of high school. Um, and it was all small game, squirrels, rabbits. Um, I went hunting for whitetails a couple of times. Um, didn't see anything. Saw some turkeys, of course. You're hunting for deer and you see turkeys and you go hunting for turkeys and you see deer. Mm-hmm. Um, so just that kind of stuff. Nice, nice. So what uh, initially got you interested in uh, fly fishing? Well, when I moved up, before I moved up to Alaska, my dad had sent me a fly rod because, of course, you can't really come to Alaska without fly fishing or knowing how to fly fish. So he sent me a rod. Um, it's a, it was a six-weight G. Loomis Pro 4X, and uh, I learned to fly fish there just basically all on my own. There's a little stream in the town that I was living in uh, called the South River, and it was stocked with rainbows. And I think it had wild brown trout in there too, or it was stocked with browns, one or the other. And it had smallmouth in it too. So I actually started fly fishing woolly buggers for smallmouth, and I figured that out. And then when I came up to Alaska, I had like the bare minimum of technique and everything needed just to kind of get started. Nice. Yeah. So like right now I still consider myself a general like new person to fly fishing, which is crazy to think about, but you know, there's just so much in this world of fly fishing that we know or we don't know. And it's just so kind of location dependent. It's crazy. I'm still learning every day. Heck yeah. Yeah. Keaton and I are the same way. I mean, we've, we've been doing it and I don't think, I don't think anybody ever really knows everything about fly fishing. I think it's always a learning experience. For sure. 
especially trout like trout are such a finicky thing like you're like you think you got it right all one day and the next day you go out and they went from sunny to cloudy and there's a slight change or something you know and and you're using the same stuff and you think it'll be working and it doesn't so it's it's crazy and you learn stuff i learn stuff every trip i go out still even if i'm fishing or not fishing i still learn something yeah. and, it, and it's good to hear too from you jordan that as a fellow guide somebody who works in the industry like knowing or you you saying that you know that you don't know everything and i think that's important for for people to know for people who actually do it as as a job make a living off of it um or even if you're just doing it seasonally as a guide like we don't know everything and we're always still learning just just like the people that we take out yeah oh yeah that's the truth i think i think too when people start getting into the the fishing industry they feel like there's all this information they got to know everything about it in order to be a successful fisherman and that's not the case you know and just like kyle said you know, as a guides, I feel like a lot of people come out and they're like, you should know everything about it. But, you know, we know techniques and we know how to catch fish, but we don't know everything about the fish. Like we're still figuring that out. And so I think just for like newer people listening, you know, you don't have to know everything, just know a little bit about what you can and, and go from there and build off and you'll learn as you go. For sure. I've been, um, driving to Homer this past couple of months back and forth. And I found myself listening to um, this podcast, of course, and, uh, <laughs> and um, the Millhouse podcast where Andy is just talking to all those old timers. And so many of those guys, same when they were guiding, they would always go to a new spot just to keep learning. Yeah. You know, always just take their clients to a new spot. You know, they wouldn't always tell them it was a new spot, but you know, just the drive to continue to figure it out and can, and, just kind of make that uh, worthwhile. Yeah. Thank you. What was that one called? The Millhouse podcast? Yeah. Huh, um, Andy Andy Millhouse and his son, Nicky Millhouse. Um, it's, they're kind of saltwater guys in the Keys. And they've, they've done some hunting and mainly just kind of um, interviewing their old timers before they kind of get phased out of the industry and all their stories and all the things that they have taught just kind of go away with that. That's cool. Yeah. We'll have to check that one out. It sounds like a, a good one to listen to. Definitely recommend it. So what originally brought you to Alaska? Like what, what made you move up here? Um, yeah, that's a good question. It was, I just finished my first year of college in Virginia. It was all right. I was just kind of doing the, the bare minimum as a business administration major and then uh, my dad had got stationed here at joint base um, in Dorf Richardson uh, a couple years prior to me finishing my first year of college and then um, I, was, I was just like you know my dad lives in Alaska I've never lived with him before uh, this would be my first opportunity to um, so I was like heck let's do it so I called him one day on I think it was in January like on my way home from classes because I was just a commuter student I was like, hey, dad, uh, I'm moving to Alaska this summer. He's like, perfect. I'll gladly accept you. So that's kind of what spurred it. I had no intent to like fish or be a guide or anything. And it was just kind of that all just kind of worked into the into the story. But I was just tired of Virginia. It got old after a while. Yeah. Gotcha. I've, I've heard but looking back. <laughs> go ahead. 
Oh, I've said I, I've had some friends that moved from like the small towns and you know Vermont, Virginia, and stuff. And they're like, you know, it's cool for like a couple years, and then after that, it just kind of seems like the small town vibes just get to you, and you just need to go explore a little bit. Oh, definitely. Yeah. I honestly am starting to feel that way in Alaska too. Alaska's yeah. kind of it's so big, but the population and where everybody got so small, where it's like I'm just in another small town. Yeah. 100%. But looking back at Virginia now, you know, I had an amazing brook trout fishery like right next door, at 10 minutes away. And I fished it once when I've gone back in Thanksgiving. And that's one thing that I wish I would have utilized more is just like a small creek brook trout fishery stuff. Mm-hmm. It's, it's funny because you catch yourself like, you know, I just, I was gear fishing, kind of same story like growing up. And now I'm into fly fishing. And I'm like, damn, like as a kid, I missed all these opportunities to go and fish these great fisheries when they're like in their prime. And I had no idea, you know, I had no one in my life to teach me to fly fish or to, you know, I had people teaching me to gear fish and stuff, but we only fish certain fisheries. Like they're like, oh, this is where we're going today. And I was like, okay, let's go. But I wish I had that like drive and I was able to go do things when they're in their prime. Oh, for sure. There was this, um, when my dad was stationed at Fort Leonardwood in Missouri, there's this river that runs through base called the big or little piney and big piney river. And mm-hmm. we fished it on it with a canoe, the outdoor wreck, they'd, they'd haul you up and they'd, you'd float down all day and then you'd, you'd take out and we fished it with just like topwater zoom frogs, like the horny toads. And mm-hmm. I was like, man, I'd love to get a fly right in there right now. <laughs> Heck yeah it's all those things sometimes it takes moving away to realize what you missed back home yeah of course of course so you you kind of mentioned you did a little you little a little bit of fly fishing like back home and then you moved up to alaska like did you just like head straight into guiding or did you try some you know did you try out some rivers did you start trying to figure stuff out and then just found your way into guiding can you kind of explain about that a little bit more yeah definitely um so part of my dad's kind of retirement plan was he was a fishing guide and that is what he kind of did his last year in the army and then he made a full-time job out of it his last like five years in in anchorage before he moved and um so i got here um he you know first thing i did when i landed went to the tail race fished for kings um didn't catch nothing per usual but you know i hit the ground running with him on everything like alaskan so tail race for kings ship creek for silvers um, like montana creek for chums or whatever and so i ended up just he was not necessarily i wouldn't say overbooked but booked so much where he needed other guys so he out contracted to me just being his son like he could trust me <laughs> and so i did a couple Ship Creek trips for silvers, limited out with those, and that was a blast. Um, and then I did a couple Montana Creek trips, and that was kind of like my intro to guiding. And they were all gear; none of them were fly fishing. Yeah, um, I I fly fished along the way. So you know, before I did the Montana Creek trip, I went with my little brother, and we brought our fly rods, and we just tore up the chum in there. I mean, it was so fun, just like 
I don't know, a quarter mile above the mouth. And it was, it was a blast. And then, so like the more you do that, the more I kind of got out there with a fly rod, the more I learned. And then let's see, did a couple of late trips, um, just hanging out with my dad. Um, and I, I bring the fly rod with me because pike, pike on a fly rod are awesome. Mm-hmm. Yeah, some people kind of disagree and say they're kind of dumb, but I mean, that first 15, 20 seconds, you can't beat that. Mm-hmm. And then, um, I did the Russian River once that fall, um, and it was actually right after it blew out, so we didn't catch anything. There were no salmon at all, and probably like the first of October. Um, and so, like after that summer, like my first summer in Alaska, I fly fished a handful of times. I knew the basic knots and the basic flies. I knew nothing about bugs, nymphs, dry flies, nothing, absolutely nothing. Um, but like Alaska fishing, meat fishing, beads, flesh. Mm-hmm streamers and um i was like you know what why can't i just guide in bristol bay like i need i want that adventure you know i wanted to really experience alaska anchorage and like the matsu valley were were all right but if i was gonna do it i really wanted to do it yeah. and so knowing i had zero experience i just blast out a bunch of emails everybody got an email um with the same like i copy and pasted the same paragraph with a resume just change the name of the lodge or the outfitter and just set them out um looking back a little tip i recommend people call instead of email because mm-hmm. i've called around this season looking just for summer jobs and so many of those people are talking to me now that i'm calling them so i wish i would have done that but out of we'll say like 40 emails i got five replies and i wasn't even looking to guide i was just looking to you know, just get on with a lodge as like an assistant guide, thinking that these lodges had assistant guides, which they really don't. Yeah. Um, and then those handful of lodges um, wanted me to come out with them. And they were all kind of like entry level lodges, you know, like um, Alagnac, uh, the one that I think his name is Jared the last couple of weeks. Um, mm-hmm. The one that he the one that he worked at got back to me. Um, the lodge that I ended up working with called Fish and Bear Lodge, they got back to me. And, you know, it was all required on, do you have your captain's license? And I was like, heck no, I don't have my captain's license. I didn't even know I needed that. And so Justin, my boss at Fishing Bear, he was like, listen, if you get your captain's license, I'll bring you on. I was like, all right, deal. And since he was the first one to contact me back, I had to, like, give him my word just because I've kind of always honored that first come, first serve deal. So I got my captain's license, did the class in Anchorage, um, I got my restricted one, so I can't get anywhere else. That was quite an interesting ordeal uh, between the OUPV and the ROUPV. Um, and then for a summer with him, I guided with him for uh, four years, minus the COVID year, so three full years, but I still went out there the COVID year. Um, and, yeah, that, that was my entry into guiding and fly fishing. Yeah. Heck, yeah. Real quick, can you can you explain what the restricted – uh, Coast Guard license is versus um, versus the other one. Yeah, so now I did this four years ago, so my knowledge could possibly be wrong. But in order, the way it was explained to me in the class I took was in order for I for myself to be able to guide somewhere, I needed so many hours on that body of water. I think I'm pretty sure is how kind of like with like airplanes, like. If somebody's going to fly an F-22, they need hours in 
a T38 before they can go to an F22. Um, and so knowing that a lot of people wanted to work out there, but didn't have the hours in that location, the Coast Guard allowed them to still have hours on a navigable body of water without being in the area. Gotcha. But being the restricted, you're only restricted to guide in that area on a boat. Um, and it's not, it's not necessarily guiding on a boat. It's having people for hire on a vessel. So just driving them around basically. Yeah. Gotcha. So I, I had a lady um, contact me to um, do a water taxi job out of Homer for this summer. And I told her that my, my captain's license wouldn't allow me to do that. I'd have to upgrade it to the, to the 25 ton or whatever. Um, but yeah. Gotcha. And it was funny when I was in that class, there was a, a film crew or I don't know, there was like some guys wanted to do a film in some remote river in Western Alaska. And they kept fighting the professor on like, why do I got to, how am I going to get arrows on a river that I've never been on in order to do a commercial shoot on? Yeah, it was funny. Very interesting class. Oh, yeah. dang. So, that, so just to do anything like commercial, you had to have, if it was using like a motor or something that had to be. Or is it yeah. Yeah, I don't know if they were having like a, a TV personality on the shoot or on whatever they were doing. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, it, it kind of got hairy and he didn't really have the answer. So he didn't really satisfy their questions. Yeah. Gotcha. Gotcha. It's a crazy process. So cool. So I got that. You went out there and you guided for him for um four years um minus the covid year and um what was that like 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 flying out there and then were you just like thrown to the wolves like here's your boat here you go here's some clients what did that look like uh man it was unreal it was unreal (laughs) having never experienced rural alaska having never experienced anything like that i mean i still can't believe that even happened and it even worked out so you know, my boss, he's been, let's see, he had the lodge since the, like, early 90s. Um, so he, he's one of, like, the older guys in, in the region. And so the lodge is in the Wood Tick State Park. So if you kind of picture Bristol Bay in your mind, there's, there's the King Salmon and the Dillingham side. Um, so we're out of Dillingham, 40, 45 miles north, northwest of Dillingham in those lakes. And, um, yeah, I got there. I before I got out there, I was like, Justin, I want to do it. I want to be out there when you open up. I want to be there for the entire season because I was planning to take the fall semester off. So if I was going to do it, this was going to do it all. And so I met him in Dillingham. Um, took the took the Raven flight out there, which this is my first Raven flight, actually. And so I go to the counter, get my ticket. I go through security. I look, I'm looking around the gates. And I, I don't see the, the gate for the Raven flights. And I talked to one of the TSA ladies and he was like, oh, no, honey, you got to go back out of security downstairs in the basement. And then that's, that's the Raven spot. And I'd asked her, I was like, well, I, you said I don't need to go through security to get on this plane that I'm about to go 300 miles west on. And she was like, exactly. Yep. No security. And I was like, OK, we're, we're starting this process with the bang. And so got there, got to Dillingham. We ran, ran around a lot in, um, with some errands. And then um, I had met uh, Justin's son, Connor, 
at the airport, did some stuff. And then we took um, an air, ta- air taxi to the lodge to open up. And this is um, the business that we used to fly our clients out every week. Um, so we had a good business deal with them. And so they flew us out. I was sitting in the back of the Cessna 185 on floats. And it was my first small plane flight, my first float plane flight. I mean, I'm pretty like, I got a strong stomach, but it was a, it was a hot, clear day. And I mean, the turbulent, just the air was super unsteady. I was getting thrown around back there. And um, I was taking pictures. I had, I bought a camera that winter and I was getting to learn it. And I still have some of the pictures that I remember. And I was like, wow, this is crazy. I can't believe I'm really out here. And I land and I love Connor to death. Absolutely love him to death. But the man works and he works hard and he doesn't stop working. So we landed and it was like he flipped the switch and we're taking cabins down or we're taking the boards off the windows. We're opening everything up. And I mean, we'll say I, we got there at like two o'clock. We didn't stop working until like 11. And it was like that the rest of the summer. Dang. Go, 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 go. Yeah, there, there's no rest. Yeah. And looking back, as the years went on, you know, um, I so the guide crew that year, it was myself, another rookie guide named Cole, and who's now my best friend, and then a returning guide named Joey, and then Justin was guiding as well. Connor commercial fish, so he just kind of opened up the family lodge, and then he was leaving fish out of Dillingham, and um, it was nice to have that shared experience with Cole being our first years together. You know, we didn't know nothing together, and so like we kind of really struggled and. We had some wins, we had some losses, and uh, looking back now, like if we were to go out there, we can open that camp up ourselves at this point. We can get it done in a couple of days, and yeah, it's crazy with the things you know now versus before you're doing it. Yeah, heck yeah. So when you're when you're going out to open that cabin, like that cabin hasn't probably seen people in a few months, right? Yeah, they um we close up about the first week of October, ideally. Um, sometimes there might be a bear hunt still around, so they'll close up middle of October. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, you're you're going through the entire November all the way till May, end of May, uh, without seeing anybody. Um, we, I think he had a caretaker a couple of times, but you get a couple of bad caretakers, and then, the, and then that just leaves a bad taste in your mouth. Yeah. So when you when you're like opening up, is there like do they try to leave a little time frame so that you can kind of repair stuff if needed and get things going again? Or is it was it like, OK, we have three to four days to open this up, get everything going and our clients are coming right in? Great question. Um, you know, the things that like nobody tells you um, So we opened up pretty later than everybody else. So some of the other lodges in the area, like Tick Narrows, um, Bristol Bay, Royal Coachman, Mission, you know, they're all opening up right around the trout opener, mm-hmm. which I think is in like the 14th of June or something like that. Um, but we didn't open up and we didn't have clients until like the 4th of July weekend. Wow. So, I mean, like you think about it, you're missing out on like, let's see, one, two, like two and a half, three weeks of tip money yeah. you just open it up and so we would do a lot of projects and um, when we opened up so you, 
like kind of the process goes. You get the cabins opened up, um, get the water pump going, clean the water tank, clean out the main cabin, get the wood stove in, um, and just kind of do projects since then. And it's kind of it can be done at a leisurely pace, mm-hmm. and we can get every everything done and have clients ready, or we can really knock it out and go hard for a week and then have that next week to relax. Um, But it was kind of based on bookings too. When I had just got there, we weren't fully booked yet. Um, But when I, like last year and the 2020 COVID year, we were 100%. And so that caused us to be 100% last year and then some. And so um, after seeing the lodge kind of progress to more of a, 100% 100% booked rate uh, mm-hmm. we now open up a much earlier um, which is nice for yeah. pay wise um, but even like my first couple of years we'd open up we'd work till I don't know six eat dinner then the guys would just fish for the rest of the evening yeah that's nice did you uh did you guys have a lot of bears near you up there or um yeah I'd say there's a lot you know they're not like cat my bears where they're like always around and they're just like in daylight or like they're not bears like when you're floating down any of those like creeks on that side of bristol bay where like you'll see all these videos and pictures of the bears in broad daylight yeah um our bears always come out at dusk or at night and they just kind of wander around a lot of times when we get into camp and we open up you know we'll have more bear activity then they're yeah. smelling us they're smelling everything they're smelling something that's not that they're not used to being in their area so they're yeah. coming to check us out and then by the time clients come in um we don't really see any bears at camp of course in camp so continue to paint that picture it's like you know you got a main lodge which is i don't know like a 20 by 20 room with a kitchen and then a dining room to the side that's fits 14 people pretty not cramped but everybody's kind of comfy you know we're really intimate and really close to each other yeah um and then the guests stay in two people cabins um kind of along the riverside right next to there and then guides sleep in what are called weather ports um, which are kind of like industrial tents uh, like frame tents Mm -hmm. um they got doors or windows and whatever and we have client showers uh, we have a client bathroom with just three toilets and all uh running water from the water tank and then the, the guides use an outhouse nice that was very well described what's well, you know i've had to explain this to so many family members because i didn't really like grow up in a super outdoorsy family so my entire family doesn't believe what i'm doing and my mom, she's always scared shitless that I'm going to get eaten by a bear or whatever. So, you know, it's good to paint the picture for these people. So at least my family can kind of understand it. Cause I don't know if I'll ever get them to come out there. So yeah, got to be descriptive about it. Gotta give yourself some pictures to take to them. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Heck yeah. <clears throat> so what was it like, like, is your first year, your first set of clients come in, what does that whole process look like of like learning how to be a host, be a guide, 
like be in the entertainment? What did that look like? Oh goodness, I was a, I mean, I wouldn't say I was a joke, but I was, I was really green. Um, let's see, day two. Now it's still dispute on what happened, but I go and launch and my fuel pumps broke. Now, whether whether it happened the day before when I brought the boat back or whatever, but on the Yamaha outboard jets, the way they designed the cowling in like the early 2000s or the mid like 2010 time, um, where like the latch on the cowling where it locked from the actual outboard was right in front of the fuel pump hoses. So if you kind of ripped the cowling off in a, at a kind of a weird angle, that, that hook would catch the fuel lines and rip them all off. Because the fuel pump, it was just a piece of plastic and the plastic nipples would be connected to the hoses and you just rip them all off. So I did that apparently. Um, don't really remember when, but day two, experienced that. And, you know, the first several weeks, I was always going somebody going somewhere with someone. Yeah. You know, very rarely during that week did we have eight guests of all twosomes. There was always like a foursome or a group of six or a group of three. And I'd always like be the the buddy. Cole and I kind of took turns. So like once when I went somewhere with somebody, either Joey or Justin, I could go there by myself. Um, now, granted, where we are, it's an inner, it's like a chain of lakes and they're all interconnected somehow. And um, if you envision like 11 lakes, long lakes going from west to east, the bottom five flow south and the, the upper ones just flow north and then east and then south. Um, but we're on the, let's see, we're on the third lake of four. And so the river between the third and the fourth lake, it's pretty hairy. Um, there's actually two rivers. There's a small lake in between that uh, connects them. But, um, you know, you got to learn the channel and you only learn the channel by following somebody in the channel. And so, the more you kind of do that and you get those reps, the better off that I was in the long run. So then I could go up there by myself and I'd have to have somebody, uh, have to follow anybody up there. Um, and then we did fishing on the third lake too. There's all kinds of stuff. There's a whole bunch of creeks that come in. So the grayling kind of flow in those creeks and we'll hike, hike up and catch grayling or look for pike in the weed beds or go down to the outflow of that lake, which is one of the, just kind of all around best trout rivers i would argue if you're looking just for numbers and quality of fish um it's a really great river you're not going to catch a 32 inch or a 36 inch trout in there like you would on the knack but you know people that come to us don't really want that they want more of an experience um so yeah new guide you're following people around until like, I don't know, week four or week five, then I was able to kind of go on my own. Um, and now, you know, now Cole and I basically just choose what the guy or like what everybody's doing. You know, we got to a point where we don't even need the boss. We can manage ourselves and where we're going and where we're taking people. So there's definitely a lot of learning. Heck yeah. Oh, definitely sounds familiar. <clears throat> I think that's, that's how a lot of people a lot of young guys get their start is you gotta, you gotta go with somebody who knows what they're doing, where they're going, and then just kind of branching off from that, learn how to do it yourself. So, yeah, and 
Go ahead, Keaton. No, you go ahead. Go ahead. Continue. Okay. So, um, yeah, Justin was a great teacher. He was a very old school man. So, you know, all this new high tech flies and spay fishing, you know, he didn't know nothing about. Um, he still fishes with flies that he bought 10, 15 years ago. <laughs> but I mean, it didn't matter because they worked. Um, and then Joey, on the other hand, that veteran guide, he didn't share nothing with me or Cole, really. And so, you know, he was a stickler on, he, he spent, you know, the past 10 years here, he's fishing his spots and we'll just have to learn it on our own and which we did. But even like somebody giving you those little like hints, like, Hey, maybe check out the boulder field or check out, uh, bees corner or, you know, any of these spots, like you're just fishing, figure it out on your own, but I'm going to kind of guide you in that area. We didn't really have a lot of guiding in that in areas. It was more so we figured it out on our own. And by the end of that year, we had really figured it out. And so then our following year, we were stoked. We were so excited because we were going everywhere on our own, didn't have to follow anybody, which was a blast. Yeah. And so I, I got a question because I, I haven't had any like this hands-on in a jet boat in Alaska, but uh, and I don't know if you you've had this happen to you, but have you ever like broke down like when your motors stops working when you're out of remote Alaska? Like, wh- what do you do? Do you guys have radios? Like, is there ways to like help you get back? I mean, if you're on your own with clients and your boat breaks down, that's got to be a little like nerve wracking. Oh, for sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so my first year, no rate. Like, so the lodge, they won't give us radios. Um just, you know, we're in such a mountainous range yeah. and, you know, I could be going 40 minutes east down the lake where I could, you know, use a radio, but, you know, there's somebody, there might not be somebody at camp. There's out there, like the cook might be at camp, but he doesn't have a way to get to Justin because Justin was guiding too. Or I might go 40 minutes north through the mountains and, you know, there's no way a radio is going to get through there once I'm on the other side. Um, so my first year was really kind of wide, like, like crap this is kind of this is a big deal you know i i don't have a first aid kit with me i i just had some flares and like the coast guard like required stuff a whistle and some flares and whatnot and thankfully nothing bad ever happened so like like majorly bad there was this one time i was uh on a creek up on the upper lake fishing and um i had followed a guy up there and he he had gone higher up on the creek than i i was and so we'd kind of like tag team this creek. He'd fish the upper half, I'd fish the lower half. And I had got to this creek. And for the most part, it's weightable. But there was this one section where I wanted to be on the other side. And the only way for me to get there was to throw the clients in the boat, start the boat, putz over to the other side and, you know, cut the engine and drop them off. And this creek, it's kind of a gravel creek. Um, it always changes every year with the gravel bars. It's gin clear. All the water is just crystal clear up there. Um, and so I get them, get them in the boat, turn, pull it, start it, puts over to the other side, kill the motor before I suck up gravel. And then I go to lift up the cowling and the latch breaks. That hook rips all the fuel lines out. So now I'm just stuck there and I was like, well, thankfully I got Joey above me. So he'll, he'll see us when, when we come down. You know, this is exactly, exactly what you were talking about. I had no way to let him know I was broke down. So I was like, all right, guys, he, Joey's going to come down at, at the end of the day. You know, it was like, I don't know, 10 o'clock. So we just fished our way down. 
floated the boat down. Um, you know, we walked the rest of the way and they had a fun time, caught a bunch of fish. And then when Joey, when I hear Joey start to come down, I pull the cowling off, make sure that he knows I'm not going anywhere. And then I'm broke down. He got there and picked up the clients, which was kind of questionable going down um, the next river is to camp, you know, cause there's a big weight difference between having two people in the boat or having four people in the boat. Um, but he took the other two clients. They were two tall and skinny guys. So it didn't really matter. Um, and then I sat there with the boat for two hours. Uh, and then my boss came and got me and, um, you ask him or you ask Cole this story, but you know, I was bored. I wasn't freezing. I was like, well, let me start a fire. Let's see if I can really start a fire if I needed to. <laughs> so I, I, uh, I think I had a lighter with me. And so I took some fuel. I collected some sticks and I started a fire that was about the size of a coffee mug. And at that time, Justin came and he saw the smoke from my little fire. And at that moment, he started making fun of me. I was like, dang, that's the fire you're going to build if you're going to try and stay warm. And <laughs> That story got told as soon as we got back to camp, and Cole never li- lets me live that moment down. Oh, that's so cool. Yeah, like, <laughs> if, if Joey wasn't above me on that creek, they would have had to come and find me. And thankfully, like, before we leave camp, we tell somebody where we're going. So if, whether that's the cook or the boss, if he stays back that day, you know, like, I'm going here, Cole's going to the pack, um, Brendan's going to hop around the lake. Um, you know, we, we have a time to be back by. But if the fishing's good, we have a leeway time of about an hour. And after that, then they leave and come come get you. Um, so thankfully, yeah. I've never had to be gotten. But Cole has been broke down a couple of times where we've had to come and find him. Um, but yeah, so then after that first year, I bought an inReach. I had to have something. Yeah. Um, so I bought it in reach. My boss has one. He, um, he lives off it in the summertime, honestly. And then all the hunting guides, he makes the hunting guides have them. Um, so I bought it in reach, kept in contact with him, which it turned out to be really helpful. Yeah. Heck yeah. Yeah. In reaches like if I had to have like one thing I made sure I had with me every time I left the house is my in reach. Like that's, oh, yeah. that is your literally how you communicate with the rest of the world like if something goes down that's your only line of defense really yeah whenever i drive to homer i always bring it just to go over turning and pass you know because it's like you never know what could happen and it's always good to just be able to tell somebody what's happening when you can't yeah and get someone out to you if you like something happened especially like if you're out you know on your own with clients or you're out hunting on your own or you're out with you know maybe it's just you and like a friend out hiking i mean it's just good to know there's all these stories that you you think you know you know you go oh i've rode this water a hundred times or oh i've hiked this ridge like 20 times you know but whether you know whether or something happens or they change a trail the next thing you know you're you don't know where you're at so um i I need to get one too (laughs) i haven't got it yet Kyle's been telling yeah. me to one. Uh, definitely got one. Got to. I got my girlfriend one for Christmas because she likes to. She bought a skiff and she'll rip it around, catch Mac Bay. And I was like, girl, you got to get one of these. If not for your peace of mind, for my peace of mind. Yeah. And 
you know, her all her family has one, and yeah, their their life's there because you know you never know what could happen. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so let's let's start let's start moving this way. So you're starting to finish up the end of your season, and then did you just were you like, okay, I guided, and then you're like getting ready to go home, and your boss is like, hey, you want to become a moose packer, or how did that ha- all happen? Oh, that was. I wouldn't say that was that was not kept under the rug for me. Um, from my experience, was I was signing up to work the entire season, opening to closing. What that entailed was being a fly fishing guide, July August, being a moose packer September, and then we fished two more weeks of fly fishing at the end of September. Um, so, you know, I knew exactly what I was getting into when I um, when I got on there, and. You know, granted, kind of off topic, but I'll come back to it. You know, there was no packing list. I didn't know what to bring out there. I brought a, a sleeping bag that definitely was not warm enough, you know, a whole bunch of cotton clothes, didn't know how to layer pop properly. And then, you know, with like moose packing, like, I don't know what to expect. I ain't never seen a moose before. <laughs> so September 1st rolls by. We've had some great weather and... You know, the, the fly fishing guides role at this camp, um, you know, it's a great way to get your foot in the door as a hunting guide because you need a handful of summers or seasons packing for somebody before you can apply for your assistant guide license. And there's a whole other step to get you registered guide. Um, but yeah, first week of September, we packed moose. Um, you know, it's just, it's crazy. They, they harvest moose in the most beautiful of locations. And I'm just grateful I got to experience something like that. I only did it one summer or one season just because I was a full-time college student and my program wouldn't let me take the fall semester off continuously. Um, but yeah, there was one time we, there was a moose shot. We had to fly it out. And so I got flown up, packed the moose to the lake and then, got flown back to the lodge and then Cole did some more packing trips. So he got the, the short straw on that one. Another time we had to uh, hike in an inflatable kayak to a spot, pack a moose to the creek and then float the entire moose on this inflatable kayak. And I mean, I'm not talking like you're, you're like your Walmart sun dolphin kayak. I mean, this was like a industrial like inflatable kayak. And then we floated it out. Um, let's see what else boated a couple out yeah I mean it's just crazy <laughs> it was a hell of an experience um, yeah. I had never skinned a big game animal um, so being in that and by the time we got there they had already kind of ported it up and I, my job was just to get there was just start packing Yeah. Um, but a couple, couple times we got there and it wasn't the process hadn't got started yet so I was able to be part of it and the one that I had to, uh, that we had to um, float out with the kayak, the guide, his name was Troy. Troy was a great guy, great guide too. And so um, we got there. They had skinned the moose and we were cutting the ribs off. And we got there, we didn't get there a little late. The hunter and the hunting guide notified us a little late. So by the time we got there, the animal was a little bloated just because it was sitting in the sun for an hour or so yeah and so here's my job 
all right, here, take this saw and just start cutting the ribs open. Uh, I didn't know any better. So I go, I go hardcore, just straight in there. And I get that first rib going. I get that second rib and then, pop, the stomach, it basically exploded all over me. Oh. Grass and, like, just all this crap just, like, sprayed on my shirt. And they were on their knees laughing because, like, they kind of knew it was going to happen. I don't know what was going to happen. And so that was an experience. All in all, I know what to do now. Um, Give it to the other rookie? Yep, give it to the other rookie. (laughs) (laughs) Was it it like a good – did the guy make a good shot placement on it or did he like hit it in the gut? No, it wasn't gut shot. It was just – You just – When you're sawing it, you just like nick the gut? Yeah, and it, I don't even think it was the gut. It was more the actual stomach itself. Yeah. So it wasn't like a whole bunch of like moose shit that came flying on me. It was actual like grass yeah. and leaves and shrubs and whatnot. That's yeah. crazy. So were you ever yeah, there I, like during a hunt or were you always just oh, called in once something was shot? There was a – so Cole expressed Cole – was, Cole was older than I am. When I was doing this, I was only 20 years old my first year. So I was I was young. I mean, I was freshly in high school young. And um, so Cole was a little bit older than me just by a couple of years. And, you know, he had a lot more hunting experience. So, you know, they're from a business standpoint, they're investing time into him more so than me because um, they can get a return on investment from Cole because, you know, Cole can now guide hunts now because he's done all the packing, all that kind of stuff. And so if there was ever an opportunity, Cole was the one to go. Um, so Cole was able to see a brown bear dropped, which I'm jealous of because the way he tells the story is a pretty cool experience. Um, so, yeah, I never got to go on the hunts. I pro- if I really pushed for it, I probably could have. But, you know, they leave at such godly hours in, in the day. And I'm just like, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm good at camp. I'll, I'll make breakfast and send you guys off. But I'm going to go back to bed. Yeah. So... Joey, our, let me back up a little bit. Our cook for my first year um, was this college kid, great guy named Ben. Um, he cooked, and then he had to go back to school. So Joey was supposed to cook, but Joey ended up getting let go because he was an alcoholic. Um, so then the day that Joey left camp, Justin looks at us and like, so he looks at Cole and I was like, you guys want to you guys want to cook? Because <laughs> Joe's leaving, so it's up to you to cook. And wow. so we were like, sure. So we cooked during moose season. And so kind of what we would do is we'd wake up at the ash crack of dawn. I mean, it was dark out long before the sun was going to get up, make these guys breakfast, eggs and bacon, same thing for these hunting goons. Um, And then depending on where they were going and what was happening, the hunting guides would leave with their clients. Um, Cole and I would just hang back, go back to bed. And then if nobody shot a moose that day, we wouldn't really see anybody for the rest of the day. They'd either stay out there or the guys closer to camp would come back and eat lunch at camp and then go for the evening. But from what my experience was, is if, if it's going to happen, it's going to happen the first like three hours of daylight. Yeah. And, it, and we actually got onto a routine to where every other morning uh, a moose was shot. Oh, wow. That's very cool. 
So were they accessing to hunt the moose via boat or was that, or, or how was that going on? Uh, both, um, depending on the hunter's capabilities, if you would have thought everybody wanting to hunt moose would be physically able to do an Alaska moose hunt, if you were to like imagine what kind of physical capabilities you would need there. Yeah. But that's, that's actually wrong. Um, being that we were kind of one of the only moose hunting operations in Alaska out of a lodge and not like a straight out camp. Um, being that some of the clients that they had were more of the physically unable. So sometimes they would take a boat to a spot, hike, I don't know, a quarter of a mile. Sometimes they would hike more than that. Sometimes they would hike less than that. It kind of just depends on the, the hunter's capabilities. Gotcha. But yeah, the, the boats were our main mode of transportation. Being in the state park, you can't land planes on the land or use ATVs or anything like that. Yeah. So, I mean, were a, a lot of the moose shot down kind of by like lakes and stuff? Or did you, would like also you have, you kind of say like a lot of them were from the boats, right? But like, what about, would you have clients come in that would want to like hike up in and like go up trails and like get the full experience? Yeah, there were some, um, some spots that kind of required like an out camp for clients that wanted to do that kind of stuff. Yeah. So then a guide would get flown up to a spot and then a hunter would get flown up a couple of days later and they'd, they'd hunt out of that spot. And that'd be like a more like in-depth kind of in the wilderness experience rather than just hunting out of the lodge yeah i bet those packs were fun yeah you know it's <laughs> dude it's 90 to 90 pounds for a front quarter and then 110 pounds for a back quarter and then you, they try and throw on like an extra meat bag or ribs or whatever and it gets heavy man I've, i'm only like six foot 150 pounds so when you throw something on that's more than half my body weight i'm it takes me a while to get from one spot to the other. Yeah. Well, you're not going to be, you're not going to be, you know, you're going to be climbing over stuff and following the trails back out, I bet. So it's like when you add that weight on, you're not going to be high legging it over branches and stuff. <laughs> no. Time. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. What was your, like, what was like your easiest pack out? Do you have any like really like super easy ones that like the guy like, dropped it right by the lake and you just pretty much rolled up in a boat and threw it in or were they all no gnarly they were all i mean the easiest one was probably the the one we had to float out with the kayak but you know the distance from the moose to the to the river was i mean a hundred yards at most so we wouldn't even bother with putting it in a pack we would just kind of bear hug it and just kind of slide it down a hill onto the kayak um but we had to hike that kayak in there, which, I mean, it, it's not light by any means, but I mean, it's definitely not the size of a quarter. Yeah. Um, so like, you know, I, I've only seen television shows and stuff about it. And a lot of people are like, oh, right when you shoot a moose, like you got to make sure to do your process fast because it's kind of like a dinner bell for uh, like predators and stuff. Was that the case near you or is that like, how, how was that? Did you ever like feel like when you were packing, you have a piece of meat on your back that's 
you know, did you ever feel like you were getting watched or like something was you ever felt nervous, like hiking something out? No, you know, as long as we were there, I don't think any bears would have messed with us. Now, you know, if one of them, you know, if they were to, they, and they've done this with bears, um, reason I know it's, it's a used technique, but if, like if they drop an animal in the evening or dusk hours, they, they find it, they confirm that it, it has been harvested. Um, one of them would just like take their underwear off and just drop it on the bear, like a shirt or something so that, you know, the bear is going to smell it, but he's also going to smell the, the odor of a person. So then they're not going to be as inclined to mess with it. Um, but generally the moose that I packed out, they were always shot in the morning. So we had all yeah. day to get it hauled out of there. And I mean, it was a very relaxed area that like, Nine times out of ten, the hunting client would just be out there taking a nap, and we'd just be working away on this moose. Yeah. So your clients, I mean, they pretty much all they really did when they came up on a trip is pretty much pulled the trigger, and you guys did pretty much the rest of it? Yeah, most of them. Now, there are the, the, some guys that are, like, super gung-ho, and, like, they're great. They want to be, like, in it, skinning it with you and everything. Um but granted, I've only packed out one, two, three, or maybe four. Well, three, three moose. And the ones that I did, um, the client, out of one of the three, the client helped us. Um, so the kind of the rest that I'm talking about is more so hearing it from the guides and Cole. Yeah. Um, but like the fishing clients versus the hunting clients, two different de demographics i mean completely different end of the spectrum yeah how so you know with our fishing program is more tailored to now it's it was kind of described uh like uh it was described like this to us from the people who pick up our clients from the airport in dillingham which is the air taxi mm -hmm. business and like when that alaska jet arrives there's the guys wearing jeans and a t-shirt standing on a case of Bud Light. And then there's the couple in tucked in pull tucked in like button down shirts with like, I don't know, a Patagonia vest or Patagonia luggage. And they're a bit older, but a little bit more refined people. So the, the refined people would be our fishing clients, but and then our hunting clients would just be anybody that could afford to do a $10,000 plus moose hunt. So it was generally like business people, business guys. Yeah. And so generally like the guides that are, or the dudes that are like in jeans and a t-shirt and with the case of beer, they're going to be the ones going to like to the meat lodges, to the ones that are doing kings or silvers. And where we were, uh, the Nooshigak was right there. So they'd fly into Dillingham and fish the Noosh. And there's a lot of king camps on the Noosh. Yeah. When you, um, so you, you kind of mentioned that you guys did moose. And then you said later in the year, you, you guys did bears. Did you ever, did you ever get a chance to like um, maybe hunt blacktail or any like small game or a smaller game? Or was it just like a year of there working? Um. Yeah, I was there working. I did a lot of fishing, but um, we didn't have blacktail that far inland mm -hmm. um, where, where we are. 
And so if I wanted to hunt anything, it'd be grouse. There is a shit pile of grouse. Uh, in the fall mornings, like come like the moose opener or whatever, you'd wake up and as the sun's coming out, there'd be like 20 grouse on the beach just running around all throughout camp. And the boss had set a strict rule of no shooting the grouse in camp. If you ever did want to shoot a grouse, you had to go kind of around the point a little bit down from camp. And um, so, like, I could have done that if I wanted to. Yeah. Um, I was I was too I was too busy wanting to fish. Yeah. So you can you said there's no deer. What were like your animals up there? Because like I you know I'm down here. I don't really know yeah. a lot about Alaska. You know, there's probably other people that are wondering the same thing. Moose, bear, is that kind of the bread and butter yeah. there? So, um, a long time ago, I think in the 70s and the 80s and early 90s, there was a really large caribou herd on the upper lakes in the Wetichik system. Um, but a while ago, those caribou died off because they got, I think it was called like hoofing disease. So that entire herd died off and there's not many up there now. Um, every once in a while, you'll see a caribou pass through. Um, where we are because we're a bit lower on the chain of lakes and so you'll see a couple caribou transiting through um there's i don't think there's a season for them but there might be it for residents i don't know but we never targeted the caribou because we only see like one a summer and it was in the middle of july um moose brown bears black bears um that's basically it for the big game and you'd see like a wolverine a summer um, <laughs> that's cool you'd see You'd see a wolf prints, no actual sightings of a wolf, but you'd see some wolf prints, a lot of beavers, um, and then just kind of like your general Alaska small game type stuff. Gotcha. <clears throat> what did uh, so you were you do fishing in the summer when you had the moose season, and then you said you go back to fishing again after that? Yeah, um, you know, the, the last two weeks of September are arguably the best times to fish if you want big hot trout um you know they spend all of the summer in august and the beginning of september eating protein eating eggs eating flesh so you know that's going to be the the biggest that's going to be the 25 incher with huge shoulders and like 14 inches of girth and just going to be like this monster fish um so that's fun and it's all swinging streamers basically and mice fishing too um no, no real big dry fly fishing. Um, but the, what sucks about those is just you don't got as much daylight. You know, you're really starting to get low on daylight. The sun is at such an interesting angle where you always think it's the afternoon. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, those are the two coldest weeks of the year generally, and that's for the kind of the hardcore fishermen. But the guys that can really pound it out and get after the, the reward is definitely out there. Heck yeah. So what's like a, what's a big fish then for your system that time of year? Like a big trout? Um, this past summer, the biggest fish that we caught was actually in the first week of the year. And it was 28 and a half inches. Nice. That's a big which is, fish. That's probably a 28 and a half trout there is probably equivalent to like a 35 inch trout on the magnet. Wow. Um, it's just like you, you don't really come by. You come by a lot of 25s, a lot of 26s, 27 here and there. But when you get to like the 28, 29 inch range, it's unreal. Um, so that was biggest for trout. 
Um, every week we'll catch, you know, one to three 20 inch grayling. Um, char fishing wise, more so in the beginning of the year. Um, char fishing is really good because they're eating the smolt as they're coming off of the rivers into the lakes. And that can get really fun. I caught an absolute toad of a char my second year out there, which I didn't measure or anything. Actually, no, I didn't measure it. But, I mean, it was fat. It was so big. And then the the char kind of disappeared for the main part of the summer. And then once when the salmon start dropping dropping eggs, they will uh, come back into the creeks and be available to fish. And then – but a big one for that is going to be – the same like 28, 32, 35 inch range. And then pike, we've um earlier in the season, a big pike in our area is going to be mid to high 40s. Um, we have some spots where we can consistently catch a couple of toads every week. Nice. So what does that look like then? I know we were just kind of talking about fall as you're progressing and you said that that's when you're fishing all your beads, your your flesh patterns. What does that look like through the whole season? Like, what do you start fishing with for, say, the trout, the grayling, the char? And then at, what are you changing up as you go? And then like, what are you using for pike? And when does that season start? Yeah, so, you know, for the most part, pike spawn as soon as the ice breaks off the lake. So mid-May-ish. And so from end of May to beginning of July, you know, it's, it's pike. When, once when you get to like actual July and August, the big girls kind of go deeper and it's a little harder to catch them. Um, so I always told clients, you know, our fishing season can be divided into thirds. Um, the first third will be when we opened, which in last year's case was mid June, all the way through about, july then august will be its own third and then the last third would be september so in this first third um it's mainly the the larger rivers that are fishing and pike so we're fishing main lakes we're fishing the rivers between the lakes for trout and char at the mouth Um, the trout are still in the main rivers they're still kind of transiting in between locations and the pike are still in the flats. The grayling are not in the creeks yet because the creeks are a little too cold and the lakes are still at a comfortable temperature for them. And trout fishing wise, it is dry flies 100% of the time. And it's unreal. It's so amazing. I knew nothing about dry flies, nothing about topwater bugs. And then you fish at a lodge like this that primarily uses dry flies for trout and it's game changing. Um, so one of the main rivers that we fished called the Agula Pack, which is short pronunciation, is just the pack. And um, we, one cool thing about us is since we are able to drive a boat there, the flyout lodges in the area that fly to that river, they'll leave at four o'clock on the dot. And, you know, nothing really has happened at four o'clock bug wise. Um, there's some stuff, some caddises, some mayflies, but when you get to like eight, nine, ten o'clock, I mean, it's crazy. You could be anchored up behind a rock and you can spend half an hour or hour and a half 
catching fish because you can just hear them rising all around you. And these are all like high teens, 20s, like 24 inch trout. So like they're all like pretty big trout for for a dry fly. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, you're not catching, as far as I know, and I could be wrong, but you're not catching those 30 inch trout on a dry fly. So for people who really love that kind of experience and love hunting fish and seeing it, you know, that's an amazing way to do it. And we have the entire river to ourselves, which is unheard of in Alaska. You're always sharing it with somebody. Um, So having that's been pretty special. So that's kind of the first third, right? So then we go into the middle third, which is arguably my absolute favorite. Now the grayling are in the creeks because the lakes are starting to warm up some. So you have a whole lot of like spock and stock grayling fishing, which is super fun. Um, The pike's slowing down, but if you want, like if you have a client that's like, I want to catch a pike as soon as they get off the plane. You're like, okay, cool. We can go hammer on some hammer handles and, and make your trip. Um, and so then the salmon are starting to come into these creeks now. And we have about three or four creeks that we can kind of do like a nice rotation through where we can spot and stock trout. Mm-hmm. And I mean, that's just the most fun thing ever. I think Jared was talking about it, but you're now hunting trout. And it's a completely different area. You you know, you're walking up this creek with some clients and you see a trout and then you take Jimmy over here who's the closest to you and you, you make sure he sees the trout. So he's like, okay, yeah, yeah, I see it, I see it. I was like, all right, Jimmy, you're going to have like one shot at this trout. You better lead him. Let me take your bobber off and we're going to watch the bead. So, and you better set the hook when, he, when you see that fish open up, you better set the hook. And if the lighting's right, you know, he throws it above this fish. That that beach dribbling down. And we're in like chin deep water, knee deep water, cast into like knee to, I don't know, low thigh deep water. And you see that trout in his lane and he comes out, eats that beach, Jimmy sets the hook, and it's just like game on. You could do that all day long. And it's, it's like a drug. I'm addicted to that. So that first that month of August is just unreal with that and so the creeks will spawn first salmon wise um and then the main rivers will spawn so it's kind of like we kind of honestly have it down to a system to where this creek's always the first to spawn this week and then this creek goes off and then that creek goes off but you still can go to this creek and then once when you're done cycling through those then the pack spawning and then after all that's said and done then then the lake salmon start to spawn you can kind of like look for trout on the lakeshore. And so then, um, then you got all August. And so kind of like I talked about September time frame. there's a lot of streamers, a lot of mouse, the trout are out of the creeks. The grayling are still in there though. There's like no pike to be found. And the trout are now in like the big rivers connecting the two. And then in the spring, a lot of mousing as well, which is not like, not like the Antioch River Lodge mousing where it's like you're in like this creek. We're, we're in a little bit of a bigger river. Um, every once in a while, you'll be in this smaller creek and we'll fish beads and then we'll mice fish on the way down. And you'll be surprised how many trout that you miss on a bead will take a mouse instead. Nice. Heck yeah. That's a cool breakdown and it and it's yeah. crazy. Like you don't I feel like you don't hear a lot about like dry fly fishing for trout in Alaska, right? Like 
you think of dry fly fishing for trout and last you think of mice but that's cool that you guys have like a dedicated like dry fly fishery for trout that's that's pretty since i've been here that's pretty unheard of i think yeah i um that's you know the gulapak river it's just so special it's just this kind of large it's only like a mile and a half two miles long large freestone river um it's not, I mean, it's deep in sections. I mean, it could be like six feet in some sections, but you know, you got all this structure, all this boulder, all this bug life. And it's amazing. I have some crazy stories, but there was this one time this season where we were fishing a mayfly hatch up on a river above camp. And we could see this trout periodi- periodically rise. This trout rise different than grayling. If you, if you watch enough of them, you can kind of tell the difference. And so we'd see this trout rise, but he wouldn't want this mayfly that we were throwing. So we'd kept throwing and I'd try and tear it up. But yeah, that mayfly was my confidence fly. You know, I knew that one would work. So I'd, I'd try a different one. I'd tie it back on. I'd try a different one. I'd tie it back on. And it got to the point where, where he missed it. The angler, I think his name was like Mike. Mike threw it out there. Trout went to go grab it. Mike missed the hook scent. And I was like, damn it, Mike. You, see, you, had, the, you had one chance, man. So I was like, all right, we're going to give that fish a rest. We're going to fish the other side of the boat. So we fished the other side of the boat. And then uh, we go back, same fly. And the fly lands the water. And it's like a fish ate it out of aggression. It wasn't like a delicate, this is a little snack. I'm going to eat it and then go back down. It was like, I'm tired of seeing the stupid little bug. I'm going to absolutely kill it with all my might. So it toilet bowl being the, the fly i mean this huge splash off this take and then you set the hook and the fish exploded i was like wow i've never really seen a fish eat a fly like that off the top of the water it was crazy that's super cool heck yeah and it's just so cool because i mean the grayling they're so easy catching a dry fly so you get people who are new to fly fishing and generally in the past our clientele has kind of been 50% they fish a handful of times of the year. 25% they're like they fished every day of their life. And then 25% they've never touched a fly rod at all. Um, so you get anybody new, let's go catch grayling. It's a great way to learn. Heck yeah. Absolutely. So Jordan, you've been talking to us about your guiding experience for fishing in moose camp. Um, one of the things you mentioned when you first reached out to us is that you're deciding to leave the outdoor industry um, and you're starting to go into the military. Can you talk a little bit about why, maybe why you stopped wanting to guide um, and yeah. why you took a, like a new career path? Yeah, for sure. So growing up with just my mom and I, um, I had experienced her getting laid off my senior year of high school. And so she didn't really have a job for a while. And I don't know if that was kind of like a catalyst event, but after that, I always had the thought in the back of my mind of like needing a sense of security of like making sure I had a retirement or making sure I had health care. And, you know, I would guide every single day of my life if it had a retirement and health care. Um, but, you know, just knowing that, you know, those are more expenses that I'd have to pay off just kind of didn't give me the sense of stability that 
I had wanted to achieve. Um, and so then I told myself, I was like, well, if you really love guiding, you're going to find your way doing it again. But in the meantime, experience what an actual like real life job is like with those benefits and with that way of life. If you're miserable, then you always can go back. You know, you always can absolutely dedicate yourself to being a guide. Um, so, yeah, I am commissioning into the Air Force as an officer this spring. Um, I've spent the past three years in ROTC here at UAA. I'm just kind of plugging my way towards being an officer and all that jazz. And so it'll definitely be an exciting career path. It'll be one where I can still enjoy fishing while also having a career. And that was another thing too. It was like, because back in the day, I played a lot of golf. I was on the golf team and I was going to pursue a career in golf management or like get my PGA cert or license and be like a, PGA, like a teaching pro or whatever. And it was coming down to like just the hours, you know, golf pros always work holidays, always work weekends. And it's just like, isn't kind of the way of life that I need for myself. And, you know, I can experience that. I can experience that hobby and not make it a career. Um, so I did that with golf. I ended up doing that again with fishing. So I'll be an officer working in finance, just kind of doing a desk job, managing a group of people, a team. And um, hopefully one day I'll be on the other side of the fishing lodge and I'll be the client at Fishing Bear and I won't be the guide anymore. <laughs> there you go. That's and and I'll, I'll, I'll be that angry guide or I'll be that angry client saying, well, back in my day, we fished it down here. So why aren't we fishing it this way? <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, we get so much of that. And we know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah, it's crazy. I, I had this guy on my boat that fished with us for like five years ago. And he's like, well, Jordy, five years ago, we were down here in the pack catching them all kinds of trout. Why aren't we down there? And it was like a super low water year. And I was like, Jimbo, we can't go down there because we're not going to be able to get back up, dude. And you can't walk very far. So we're stuck up here. Yeah. Yeah, I know how that goes. But yeah, that's that's pretty cool how you're you you saw that. Like you 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 know that guiding doesn't have 401k retirement, all this kind of stuff, like doesn't have health insurance, it doesn't have this and that. So it's 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 cool to see that you recognize that and that you realize like you're probably going to have to go do something else um, to kind of, kind of make it work, you know? Yeah. And you know, I never knew what to expect getting paid. Never knew. Like nobody ever talks about it. Can't find any of that stuff on the internet, you know? And so like, I'll be honest with you guys, new guide working at a lodge that, um, runs about $4,200 a week. And it's been like that for a solid couple, like a decade or so. So, I mean, inflation should have caused those rates to go up eventually. Yeah. Um, and, you know, my first month, let's see, being new, didn't have clients. I think I made $1,500 my first month. And then you gave me a raise to two grand a month. And so I did that plus tips and, you know, my first year, like I said, we weren't fully booked at all. So I probably made like, I don't know, probably like six grand in tips. No, definitely not that much. Like a couple thousand dollars in tips. And then my next year, I got a $500 pay increase. I was making $2,500 a month. 
Um, that's probably just it's probably stuff because I was new or I didn't know how to negotiate and kind of didn't know how to uh, work for myself and get what I deserved. But I uh, tipped for a little better that year. And then COVID, I went out there. I just kind of spent a couple of weeks out there just doing some projects and was fishing for fun. And then last year, another pay increase, three, three grand a month. And then I, um, we, we had our best tip year ever at the largest I've ever seen last year. Um, so, you know, I worked two, about two and a half months and came out there with a healthy amount of change. But the crazy thing is, I, I called another lodge, a bigger lodge, a couple lakes down this season um, just to kind of see because there's still a possibility that I'll be in Bristol Bay this summer but it's like 0.01% um, so and it, it would be with my girlfriend so and she doesn't want to go to the lodge because she experienced part of it last year and it's just kind of not the best fit for her um, and he was telling me that he starts new guides out at three grand and I was like wow like that's unbelievable that I could have been making so much more money if I had just kind of applied myself and called and asked around. But then again, that same lodge is, is charging clients $11,000 a week. So they got the money to spend, Yeah, you know, and they're pushing 22, 28 guests through that lodge a week. And so you do the math and, you know, they got some income that they they need to spend on some expenses. And, you know, you get a clientele that's paying $11,000 a week to go fishing 15% of $11,000 is a whole lot different than 15% of $4,200. Yeah. You know, taking that in consideration too, you know, I'm sure guys do make it, make a living off of guiding, but it takes a lot of time at the right place. And just for me, my life, I was not at the right place in my life to do it. Um, turns out Cole, he's actually going to become the, the head guide or general manager. I think, General manager would be his title because we don't use the term head guide. Um, so like he he'll be able to make a career out of that kind of a job now. Yeah. And I mean, good for him because that's something that I had a desire to do, but I just couldn't do it. Yeah. It takes a lot of time and energy out of you. And then, you know, from what I've heard with Ty Kyle and stuff is that when you're when you're up there, you only get so much time in the year and in that time frame, like you're going as hard as you can to make as many trips and as many, you know, guide experiences as you can. And that's like your money and not just for that time, but you also got to, you know, stretch it out if that's your only way of income, which I don't think that it's possible to do that unless you're like owning or you're like, you know, like you're saying a head guide. So yeah, yeah the guys that are, you know, they're working at these bigger lodges like the Alaska Sportsman's or Dick Narrows for 12, 15 years. You know, those are the guys that are making a significant amount of money and they're able to either make that work for the entire winter, living pretty inexpensively or, you know, guiding somewhere else in the off season, really kind of riding it off. You know, it's different for us because, you know, like we get the monthly pay, but then, you know, Kyle, I don't know if you're getting like just a chunk off your daily uh, clients yeah yeah that's that's what i'm doing at a percentage of every trip yeah so i mean it's you know the tips are the large 
portion of our pay at the lodge and I just I think at, at other lodges too um so just kind of different all around yeah no totally I I agree um it's definitely hard to to make that spread out over the year if that's your only uh line of work um tips definitely um help out um that definitely adds to adds to your year helps to helps pay bills and buy gas and get stuff done. Um, and yeah, just recognizing that you do. Um, I, I think one thing that you brought up is knowing, um, knowing how much you're getting paid and maybe understanding your worth. Um, we, now you have experience, you're reaching out, you're talking to other lodges, you feel more comfortable talking to other people, you start to realize um, how much other places are paying. And that's something I've uh, realized over several years. Um, is knowing, talking to more people to understand maybe where you can get paid more um, to maybe not make it your career, but the time that you're doing it um, to get paid more. And so that's definitely something to um, to look out for and knowing, knowing your worth, knowing how much you should be getting paid for your experience. So, For sure. And you know, this is something that I fought with myself so much about because, you know, a part of my calling around this year, uh, you know, the other lodge on the lake lower than us, you know, they he was going to start me off at four grand a month. And then the tips, as you can imagine, if they're charging 11,000 a week with 20 plus people, you know, the tips are going to be almost double what I was normally making. And I mean, that's just like, blew my mind when I heard those figures. And it's like, wow, that's just crazy. Um, but then again, like, you start to think at the clientele, you know, they're going to be, those clients are going to be a whole lot different than the clients that are going to be paying for $200 a week for a lot, you know, it's just like, yeah, because the ones that, and I honestly think if I had to do it, I wouldn't go to a larger lodge, I'd go back to the smaller one, just because of the people, you know, you mm-hmm. get the people that saved up their entire life for this one trip. They appreciate it so much more um, versus the guys I can just throw around that money and, you know, they don't really appreciate a whole lot. Yeah. yeah. And then another thing that at least the, the remote guides have at our advantage is, you know, when we, when we go MIA for a couple of months, you know, I can not pay my car insurance. I cannot pay like those other expenses that I would be paying if I were like working as just a summer job at a like retail store. Yeah. Um, so that kind of really allowed me to, look at it all in a larger perspective too. Gotcha. No, I, I totally agree with what you're talking about, the, a different type of clientele. Um, when I do a lot of my trips on the road system, some people it's like their dream Alaska trip, but a lot of people it's like, I want, I'm in Alaska, I'm in Anchorage, I want to fish and I want to go someplace I can access for the day. And the people going on those trips, they don't, that's not like, they don't put that on a super high pedestal. That's like just something they're doing in Alaska. Um, they're not dropping several thousand dollars, like the uh, trip that I did in Western Alaska um, out of uh, like Bethel. And the people on that trip out West, they're dropping a lot more money. They're expecting more from that trip. They have higher expectations because they're putting that trip on a pedestal. And so just, having to deal with that clientele versus somebody who's like, Hey, we're in Alaska. We want to go fishing. Me and the kids, we just want to have a good time. Like those are the trips I really like, like 
like you being in Bristol Bay, like me being out West, like those are super cool trips, but a lot of what makes the trips for me are the clients. And I would almost prefer to have somebody who's brand new, who has no expectations. Who's like mom, dad, two kids just want to get out and catch some fish and do that as like a day thing and never touched a fly rod almost more than those people who are dropping several thousand who have fished all around the world because they have expectations. And if it doesn't meet their expectations, which are a lot of times are way too high, um, they're not going to have as good a time and it's going to um, make you as a guide, not have as good a time, not have as good an experience. Oh, for sure. You see it day by day, managing expectations. There's this one kid that as soon as he hopped off the float plane, this kid is like, I don't know, 14 years old, the classic teenager. What's the biggest trout I caught this year? Uh, yeah. I don't know. Well, I'm going to catch a bigger one. Let's go fishing <laughs> now. It's like, no, you just got off the plane, dude. You got to unpack and no. So just kind of managing those expectations is definitely a real, a real thing to do. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So I want to, we, we've been talking about fishing. I just want to kind of touch back on the military thing. Um, what are you looking most forward to about like going on to the military about an officer and, and stuff like that? Honestly, getting out of Alaska. I, <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, so with my job, I was hoping to do um, finance in the Air Force, um, but I didn't get slotted for that. I got, uh, I was hoping to do intelligence in the Air Force. Didn't get picked for that, so I got finance. And so every every Air Force base has a finance shop. Um, so advantage is that like I had 67 bases to choose from to put on my preference list. So I put eight places that I would want to go to that they would hopefully put me in one of those eight places of where I would want to go. I was like, well, now my fishing opportunities have just doubled of going to a new place. Yeah. So I put like Charleston, South Carolina on there. A lot of, I put two bases in the panhandle in Florida. Um, right. So near like Pensacola and Destin, um, <laughs> Mountain Home in Idaho. Uh, I put in for uh, Fairchild in Eastern Washington. Okay, okay. Yeah. Um, I'd be seeing you down here. Oh, for sure. And, um, you know, that's one thing I'm really, really looking forward to in the military is being able to experience a new place that I, I now have this, this skill of fly fishing that I can apply elsewhere. Yeah. Granted, I'm going to be greener than green at a new place, but I'll still be able to kind of apply what I've learned here in Alaska and just kind of take advantage of it. So that is one of the benefits. Um, honestly, the pay, I was going to enlist um, right out of college, I was going to get my associates and then enlist, but then look, look at the pay chart, like a Department of Defense pay chart. I mean, you can see the benefits of just staying in college a little bit longer and getting the bachelor's degree. So yeah. that'll be nice. And then, um, you know, just the benefits, you know, the free health care, the, the retirement system they have now, even though it's not like it was back in the day. Um, you know, there's a lot of opportunity to understand whether. I need this for 20 years and then I can just go guide for the rest of my life. Yeah. My retirement begins at 20 years. So I'm 24. Now I commissioned this spring. I'd get out. We'll say 45. Hopefully I'll have a family at that, at that <laughs> point, you know, if grand scheme of things, if we, if the family happens on a, kind of a general scale, everybody's off to college or close to being off to college at that point. So now I'm just kind of with the wife and, 
I'm old, just fine to be a fishing guide. <laughs> yeah. Well, you're not, and you're not at that point where you're like, you're too old, you know, you don't got to worry about your hip going out yet. So, yeah, for sure. You're still young, a little bit young and spry, and you're retiring, and you can go do, you got your benefits for your lifetime benefits and all that. So, that's awesome. Well, I'm glad, and I really hope it works out for you well. Yeah, thank you. That's appreciated. It's definitely been um, an interesting experience so far. Yeah. It's a big thing to serve your country. So we're definitely thankful. Can't You can't go guiding. We can't do what we do unless we have people, you know, protecting it. So for sure. Yeah, yeah well, we look forward to the scene where that takes. So like <clears throat> where Keaton and I, uh, where I used to guide Washington, where Keaton guides Todd, our owner, that's how he got to uh, the Akamas. He uh, was did a couple tours. Um, and he ended up being stationed at, um, the base there outside of Ellensburg. And that's how he got into guiding and then into owning Ellensburg anglers. Cause that's where the military took him and fishing all around wherever he was stationed. Um, and then yeah, coming back, like he wanted to end up there and was able to use his, um, his experience like, like you and yeah. own a guide business. So it'll be cool to see where you go and you take that. Oh, of course. Yeah, it'll be, it'll be fun. Lord knows where I'll be in the next 10 years, but we'll be having fun doing something, I'm sure. Heck yeah. No one, no one knows where they're going in the next 10 years. We're just here. <laughs> <laughs> You're trying to survive. Yeah. That's it. Yeah. yeah. Well, awesome. Right. I think we're coming down, you know, we're getting ready to um, kind of roll out of this, but you know, first we got a few of our last questions. Um, we have our rapid fire round that we do with everyone uh, at the end of our podcast, and then uh, we'll end it with a uh, your favorite uh, your favorite guide story. So we're looking forward to that. So Kyle, you want to kick us off? <laughs> yeah. Um, you ready for this, Jordan? Ready for the rapid fire questions? Oh yeah, bring them on. All right. So first question is, what is your favorite? fish and what is your favorite thing to hunt favorite fish has to be trout i mean plain and simple i've, I've been getting a trout lodge trout primary lodge so that's has to be my favorite fish now if i go down to the lower 48 i probably won't fish for rainbows just because alaska has completely saturated <laughs> that idea for me um favorite thing to hunt has to be ptarmigan um i've done some of that in the talk he knows that's been an absolute blast nice um, what is, so, oh, sorry one second keaton oh, uh if you yeah. if you're gonna if you say your favorite fish is a trout if you had to choose one way to catch the trout what's your favorite way to catch them with a spare rod with a spare rod swing and a streamer nice heck yeah till yeah. gives the drug baby oh, yeah. <laughs> all right what is your dream destination to go fishing Dream destination to go fishing has to be like Arctic National Wildlife Refuge for the Dolly Varden. Right now, that one is on top of my pedestal. I mean, just because it's just it's in the middle of nowhere. I mean, those fish are absolutely beautiful. Yeah. Um, so that has to be the, the most attainable one right now. Heck yeah. If you get put in Washington, let me know what we can go fit. It won't be no Arctic. We can do some kind of urban you know bull trout dollies so 
Oh, of course. All right. What is your favorite uh, meal, and what's your and what's your favorite drink for when you're on a day of in a day of fishing? Like you're going out in the boat. What what are you putting in your lunch cooler? Um, let's see. I always loved a good tuna wrap. A nice oh, tuna yeah. wrap. Yeah, that always gets me going. <laughs> and then sometimes my boss will buy Skittles and Dillingham, and I'll I'll take the massive like Costco size of Skittles and just throw them in my cooler. Um, everybody knows this, at camp that I eat all the candy, and that's just kind of what happens. So whether it's like it's the, the little chocolates or just the Skittles, a tuna wrap and that is has to be the go-to. Yeah. Yeah. All right. You're, you know, this didn't really happen out when you're remote, but like, let's say you're, you're going fishing for fun. You're, you know, you're in your truck, you're rolling to the fishing spot. What is your go-to like tunes that you're listening to? Honestly, this past summer it was, um, some shaky graves. Nice. Yeah. Roll, roll the bones or some like, any of those two just like kind of upbeat yeah that or um if we'd like when we wash dishes uh we'd, we'd listen to like rainbow can surprise or that kind of stuff too yeah nice gotcha. <clears throat> all right you're headed out the door you're going fishing you're on your way to homer um what's the first thing you're grabbing as you're headed out the door right now my reach <laughs> yep. heck yeah i totally yeah. agree that's my first thing yeah, in reach of the leather or the Leatherman. Leatherman never leaves my side at the lodge. Um, there's been countless times where I've forgotten my fishing stuff, like my actual like box of flies and everything. Mm. But I, I didn't forget the Leatherman. Heck yeah. All right. Um, something that you could share with others that you wish you knew when you started guiding or fishing in general. Guiding is not about catching the most or the biggest fish. You know, you're giving these people an experience. You're giving them something to remember. So whether that's you telling them a fun fact about the area or you taking some time to teach them a new technique, you know, you're guiding them to a memory that they'll remember forever. Um, yeah. So not, not worrying about the fish so much yeah. or, or capturing it. You know, people love videos. People love pictures. Um, I've gotten, I, I think it's safe to say that I've, I felt myself definitely take more pictures as the years go on. And, you know, those produce better pictures that the clients always appreciate. Thank you. Um, what is some advice that you would give to somebody new coming into the industry? managing expectations of your of like their self and of the clients too because i mean you could be coming to this lodge and you know all of these lodge owners you know they're salesmen too they're trying to get clients to come to their lodge so they're also going to try and get guides to come to their lodge so they might sell you like an idea like oh yeah you'll get plenty of fun free fishing time and you'll have all kinds of time off but then when you're actually in the crap you know there ain't much time off honestly so it's kind of understanding that managing the expectation of the actual job and the clients that we like we talked about earlier would be probably best advice I could give. Gotcha. It's awesome.
All right. Let's, you know, it's uh, um, our favorite part of the podcast. We're going to end it with your favorite guide story or fishing story. I thought about this one a lot. Um, ever since I started listening to you guys, I was like, which one would I do? You know, because um, there's so many. I mean, you meet so many great people out there. You talk to so many awesome people. You, you, you witness so many cool things. Um, but the one for me has to be me and this guy are fishing the pack. And it's this guy. He's a retired Army lieutenant colonel. Um, so, like, right there, we have that connection. He was one of those guys that, you know, our lunch, if we were to stop fishing and eat lunch, it lasts two hours. because We were just talking the entire time and just sit on the bow of the boat and just watch other people fish. And you know, Times like that is what I really appreciate. And um, so I'm having this day with him. It's afternoon time frame. We're on a pack. We're at the top of the pack. So it's kind of, it's a little bit wider. Um, probably like 100 yards wide. And I'm walking the boat down because generally we, you don't really row down a lot of the times. Um, there's sometimes if the water's hard, then you can kind of row down. But generally, like we were standing in the water, just walking the boat down, directing what's happening. And I'm walking the boat down close to the shore and I look, I'm just looking at the shore, looking for some fish. And generally on this river, the fish hold in the middle of the river. They don't hold on the edges because there isn't really structure on the edges. Um, but I'm looking over and I, there's this big rock that kind of juts out in the water and it's creating a very small like boat eddy right behind it. And then right above that rock, there's this tree branch that's dragging in the water. And on this bank, there's, a shit ton of caddis going off and you know we've been catching it on caddis periodically in like the main part of the river but not on the bank and i look at that rock and i see a little nose come up and i was like oh shit this can't be too good to be true because this happened to me last week but i messed it up and i went over there too fast and i got the client's expectations up and it just didn't work out and i made sure i, I kept looking there uh, Dave's fishing I saw the nose again and then immediately after that I saw another nose I was like all right here we go and so at this point you know I'm talking to him I'm like Dave look behind this rock and just watch it and he sees it he sees it again he gets excited I mean he this guy is stoked and I'm like this is what we're gonna do I'm gonna walk this boat down below this rock we're gonna get out I'm gonna catch this fish on foot because the one time that I tried to get it I kept the guy in the boat and it just kind of didn't because the angle of that branch coming above the water just didn't work out trying to get it from the boat. So you got to get it from below the fish. And we get below the fish, we walk up there, and then there's there's two trout behind this rock. And they're, you know, there's one bigger one in front, and there's a smaller one in the back, just kind of how it's always going to be. That stronger fish is going to be leading the leading the pack. And we're watching them feed, and we just kind of like sat there and watched them feed for a little bit, which was pretty cool. And then I'm like, all right, Dave, you're going to catch two fish. And then he looks at me. He's like, no, you're going to catch the fish. And I was like, no way. I can't catch this fish for you. And he was like, no, I'm serious. Do it. And I was like, all right. Well, if we're doing it, we're going to do it. So I set up my GoPro. And I got, I got it on video of me casting to this trout, laying a caddis down, him taking it, me setting the hook, finding the fish, holding the fish in front of the GoPro, dropping it back down. And that was like, that made my summer right there. And um, so then I caught the lower fish. So then he had to catch the one, the bigger one that was above it. And I, um, 
I set the GoPro up for him. I was taking pictures with my camera and just kind of coaching him through it all. And I had learned this from another client of like, when we're fishing beads and you're trying to get the right distance, you know, there's no need casting the distance over the fish to spook them. So I made him cast into the main river just like to get the distance right. So then that next cast would just lay perfectly right in front of the fish. So he did that. And I mean, the first drift that fish came like from two feet over and engulfed it. I mean, as soon as he set the hook, that fish exploded like he threw a 20 pound rock in the water. And I got pictures of like all of it. And it was just unreal to be able to share that experience with him was just absolutely the highlight of my guiding years. It was one where just like, it was like three o'clock or four o'clock and we, we, we left home. We weren't supposed to be home until six, but it was like, screw it. The day's already been made. You can't top that. Yeah. That is cool. That is awesome. <laughs> That's cool. And you get to kind of remember and share that experience with your client as well. Yeah. And there's, there is plenty of those experiences. You know, you get, when you're with the same people for an entire week, you just get to build relationships with them and it's, you get to know them more than who you're fishing with because they, they become an actual friend at that point. Yeah, absolutely. Heck yeah. Well, Jordan, we appreciate you for coming on our podcast today. This has been awesome. Yeah, guys, thank you for having me. Yeah. Um, it's It's been fun. I hope that my story can be heard by those wanting to do it and they can just really give them some insight on how to get it done. Yeah. Heck I mean, yeah. that's the, that's the reason me and Kyle started this. We wanted, you know, people like you to come on and, you know, show us that you didn't have a lot of fly fishing experience or, you know, you, you started out fishing this way and you started, you know, building that passion for fly fishing and you got that drive and you became what you wanted to become. And I mean, it's not an easy road becoming a guide at all but you show people how you did it and how you got there. So if people are interested in guiding or, you know, or just getting into the sport of fly fishing, now they'll kind of understand it from your story. Of course. And, you know, guiding is a really special thing. And I, I want everybody to go out there and do it if they have the desire to. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Jordan, thank you for your time. And this is probably going to be our, our, one of our longest episodes, which is perfectly fine with us. We know people are, will enjoy it. And um, yeah, just want to thank you for your time coming on. Yeah, and thanks yeah. for reaching out too. I, that's how we, that's how we brought Jordan on the podcast is Jordan reached out to us, um, told us a little bit about his background, brief summary. And we're like, heck yeah, this is like Keaton said, this is the type of people that we want to have on the podcast for people like Jordan. So we, we appreciate you re- reaching out. Yeah, definitely guys. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Heck yeah. Well, this was another episode of the Young Guides podcast. Uh, Me and Kyle just want to make sure to thank everyone that's listening to the podcast and sharing our podcast. Um, There's all types of platforms that you can listen to Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and our website, www.theyoungguidespodcast.com. If you want to learn a little bit more about Jordan, go to our section on our podcast and you'll be able to go down and kind of learn about all our guests and where they guided and a little bit about them. Um, And then there's also a little section about me and Kyle. This was another episode of the Young Guides podcast, and uh, we'll catch you on the next one.